get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's you know washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry, unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's, unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations, and there are a lot of them, unlimited guest service, most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Shock Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson, Richie Boswell with me in studio here. And Joel Embiid is a lot richer than he was prior to today, or at least he will be by the time his contract expires. Now, he was already very rich. He had made over six, no, no, nine figures is how the math would work out there. Over nine figures for Joel Embiid, and that just goes up even more because he is getting a four-year, $190 million extension with the Philadelphia 76ers. For his career, at the end of that contract, his career earnings will be over $300 million. And if you look back to the 2013-14 KU basketball team, you come away with a team that obviously... A little disappointing with the end of the season, losing in the second round to Stanford. But just in terms of like a recruiting tool, beyond being able to point at guys in the NBA, being able to say, these guys have made this amount of money in the NBA, it's got to be a great recruiting tool. And I'm sure this isn't any different than something that Kentucky or Duke or other schools that are producing a lot of pros would put out there. But that team specifically, 2013-14 Kansas. Yeah, Joel Embiid has obviously now made over $300 million, or will, at the end of that contract. Andrew Wiggins has made a boatload of money with the Timberwolves and Warriors. Wayne Selden, Frank Mason, both are in the NBA for a little bit, making a couple million dollars there. Uh, this is the one I was a little surprised about. Not necessarily that he was in the NBA necessarily, but how much he made. Tark Black made like $11 million in his NBA career. And this doesn't even count the money made by players for if they're in the G League or if they've been overseas making money over there. If you just total it all up for NBA career earnings for any player who was on that 2013 to 14 uh, Kansas basketball roster, at the end of the contract for Joel Embiid, it will be up to $548 million for what they've made. $548 million. Half a billion dollars might be a even crazier way of saying that. And that doesn't even account for next contract Andrew Wiggins gets. That's going to add up to it. Who knows? Joel Embiid could get another big contract after this next extension. Wiggins could get another contract after his next contract. Who knows if a guy like Wayne Selden re-enters into the league or or Frank Mason or so forth. How cool would it be to say if we can go back in time and say, yeah, that 2013-14 Kansas team, that was a billion-dollar roster, right? 
I don't know if that'll happen. That's still a long ways to go. But the way that the the salaries continue to rise, who knows? By the time Embiid's contract is up in five years, at that point, you know, he'll be, uh, what, 33 or so, somewhere around there. So I don't know. Uh, with a guy who's had those injuries, how much are you getting from there? But it's definitely like an actual possibility at this point in time that that roster does have a billion career earnings, and that is just wild to think about, that when you were watching them play basketball, you were basically watching a billion-dollar product on the court. As far as for Embiid, though, hope that he can eventually win a title in Philadelphia and kind of add to his legacy. He's already, you know, runner-up in the MVP voting this past year. He's three-time All-NBA, I think four-time straight NBA All-Star. He's been on the NBA All-Defensive team. I think two or three times. He's already had a, a great career, and you look at it statistically, and obviously that backs it up even more so. Whatever happens with the Ben Simmons trade and if they can find something for him, it'd be awesome to see a KU player be the star of a title team, right? It's it's one thing when Mario Chalmers wins it or when Sasha Khan or one of the Morris twins gets one with LeBron. It's another thing if a KU player like leads the team or is the star, is the top player on a team that wins an NBA title. Not just from a recruiting aspect, but just from like a, a rooting along standpoint. And it's it's pretty wild the transformation or the come up for a guy like Joel Embiid to go from somebody who wanted to redshirt his first year at the University of Kansas, going from a guy who barely played basketball in high school to picking up the sport, then wanting when he came in to redshirt because he was getting bullied down low by Tariq Black, to then coming off the bench, to then looking like one of the best players on Kansas, if not the best player. I mean, he probably was, yeah, the best player on that Kansas team. To doing all that, and now being a guy who will, at the end of this next contract, which, again, barring you know injuries, won't be the end of his NBA career, will have made over $300 million. That's quite the story for Joel Embiid. FM 1017-1320-KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. It is KU Football Media Days today, and we'll have a bunch of audio to play for you in the coming segments, in the coming hours here. We're also going to be joined by Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com at 4.15. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports coming up at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. The quarterback situation obviously is not going to be one that is solved until I would imagine the week of the first game, whether that's we find out, you know, that Monday, whether we find out on game day, whether we find out when we see the starting rosters. I don't think it'll be a situation like uh, the year that David Beatty, they announced the starting quarterback. If you were like at the game, whenever they do that an hour before, half hour before, and they named a quarterback and it wasn't that guy. I don't think that'll happen. And you shouldn't need it to because it, it shouldn't be about, hey, we need a schematic advantage here. And I don't think they're viewing it that way. Like with David Beatty, it was, hey, we're not going to name our quarterback till, or we're not even going to tell you. We're just going to throw out our first quarterback on the first play of the game. And that's how you're going to find out who the starter is because we want a schematic advantage. We want the other team to uh, be on their toes and, and not know what's going to hit them. And they don't know which quarterback to prepare for in film. That was kind of the idea there. I think the idea here with this current staff is, no, we're we're taking as much time as possible, not necessarily to create a schematic advantage, 
but just because we need as much evaluation time as possible. And the schematic advantage thing is is so silly to me. KU is playing South Dakota. And I get it. KU has struggled in recent memory against FCS teams. They have three losses in the past decade to FCS teams. But it should not matter who is in at quarterback for you if you are a Power 5 school playing an FCS opponent. If you want to throw North Dakota State at me, then, okay, maybe that's the exception to the rule. But they're not. They're playing South Dakota, a team who's typically around 500 in FCS ball and has questions on the offensive and defensive line. It should not matter whether KU throws out Miles Kendrick, Jalen Daniels, Jason Bean, Miles Fallon. It shouldn't matter. KU should win that game. And it really shouldn't matter in terms of, you know, if the other team is is having to spend an extra this amount of time in preparing for this guy over that guy, who cares? Put the best guy out there and have that decision made as soon as you can because you want that guy getting as many first-team reps as possible. You want the rest of the team to know who the leader is. So the schematic thing is so silly to me, and that's what we got on the case of David Beatty for. What this staff, I believe, is doing is, like I said, just taking as much time as possible. They didn't see the quarterbacks throw till the start of camp here in August. So you want as many possible looks at this thing as possible before you do come down to that decision. And with everything we've talked about with Lance Leipold typically sticking with one guy in his time at Buffalo, not that that necessarily will be the case at Kansas, but it's obviously something you want to be the case. So you want to get that decision right, right off the bat, because that is going to be the guy who has the longest leash to start out the season, because that was your initial judgment. And you want to make sure that you gave it enough time to see that your initial judgment was right or wrong. So from that standpoint, he wants to wait as as long as possible. And there is a fine line, like I said, of you want that guy to be seen as, yes, he is the clear-cut guy for the rest of his teammates from the leadership angle, from the angle of practice week leading up to the game, getting as many reps as possible. So I don't necessarily buy the schematic advantage thing of, oh, well, they have to prepare for these different quarterbacks. Because for one... Who cares if they have to prepare for different quarterbacks if none of them are going to perform really well? But also, too, you should beat South Dakota anyway. It's just a matter of taking as much time to find the right guy. So from that standpoint, I feel like we will hear something the final week of camp, or I guess the better way of putting it would be the week leading up to the game. It might not be till game day specifically, But that's kind of my thought of how we're going to hear about this. I don't think it's going to be one of those David Beatty decisions where we don't hear until literally game time. I know Lance Leipold did in a previous press conference kind of joke about that. I don't actually envision that being the case. And as far as who I think is going to be the starter, I'm sticking with what I've said over the past week or two. I think every time we've heard what the the coaches want from the quarterback, every time we have gotten a chance to see it, which was one time at the open practice, so I don't want to make it sound like I'm getting to go out to a bunch of practices or anything. Miles Kendrick was the best of the bunch, so to speak. I feel like this is trending toward being Miles Kendrick year, and there can be another conversation there about, well, how much confidence does that get you give you this season? I don't really think, you know, we should value what or disvalue maybe would be a better way of putting it, what Miles Kendrick did or didn't do in the past couple years. Because last year was a mess with the offensive line. 
there wasn't a quarterback that was going to come into that situation that was going to be set up for lots of success. I don't think that you should hold that against them. And I think in this given offense, like if you have a, a Peyton Bender type of season from, oh, I don't remember if that was 2017 or 2018. But Peyton Bender had one year with KU where pretty much all he did was, you know, just be kind of a, a check down guy. Don't force it. Don't turn the ball over. It was 2018. He ended up with 13 touchdowns and three interceptions. You look at that and you're like, oh, pretty good. The yards per attempt, though, were not good. The completion percentage was below average. The yards per game and the total yards weren't anything special. But he protected the football and made the right decisions. That's all you're going to be asking out of this guy. And I think Miles Kendrick can at least accomplish that. And we have seen other guys. We've seen Montel Cozart go to Boise State, have success. We've seen Ryan Willis go to Virginia Tech, have success. We've seen Carter Stanley under a new coordinator and Brent Deerman have success. So if you get a new coaching staff who knows what they're doing, which this coaching staff, I believe, does and is going to set you up in the right situations for that success, there can be built-in success that way. I don't want to sit on Hope Island of, well, you could have that jump because you just got a year older and we see players get better each and every year of college and you could have that big jump your final year if you're Miles Kendrick. That could happen, but you don't want to get on Hope Island there. I think the more realistic way of looking at it is, yeah, we do have a new coaching staff in place. We do have better insulation around the quarterback. We could have a better offensive line. We could have a a better running game around him that is going to help the outside version of the quarterback to where we can see the best version of Miles Kendrick this season. And that's all they're going to be asking for. You're not expecting a superstar quarterback this year for KU. Just do enough that you're not losing the game for the team and you hope that the running game can kind of lead the offense and the defense can be reliable and you can play that ball control offense. That's kind of the goal there and leading to all that, I think Miles Kendrick probably going to end up being the guy, but still a couple weeks to go here before the first game for KU football for to see if things change. I'm sure you know when you have the talent of a guy like Jalen Daniels, when you have the speed of a guy like Jason Bean, you want to give those guys as many opportunities as possible to see if all of a sudden something starts clicking, if they start picking up the playbook a little bit better, and then maybe because the potential is higher for those guys than a guy like Miles Kendrick, maybe that's enough. But as of right now, Kendrick seems to be the guy. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Richie Boswell in studio. I'm Derek Johnson here on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Matt Tate joins us in about an hour. Coming up on the other side, the ACC, Pac-12, and Big Ten have been talking about an alliance. Let's discuss it on the other side. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. Richie Boswell with me today here on RCST, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. The AP poll came out yesterday. One thing of note. All of the national champions during the college football playoff era have started in the top six. So not that this is going to be any surprise to anyone based on the teams that I'm about to say right now, but that means your national champion, based on just the history there, is going to come from this group of the top six. Alabama at number one. I know, shocking, right? Oklahoma in at number two. Not necessarily shocking, but based on the fact that they haven't won a playoff game. Can this be finally the year to get over the hump, as all the national analysts are talking about with Oklahoma each and every year? Clemson in at number three, another mainstay in the college football playoff. And then you round out the top five with Ohio State, Georgia at five, and Texas A&M at six. 
So your national champion is one of those six. Pick your favorite. Bet you it's Alabama or Clemson, most likely. I actually do like Oklahoma this year. In other college football news, this happened over the weekend. The Big Ten, Pac-12, ACC are in discussions about forming an alliance. In The Athletic, it said that the talks have centered around not just a scheduling alliance in football, but in more broader terms, cooperation. Now, what that means is kind of open for interpretation, right? Does that mean some sort of merger between the conferences? Does that mean having constant scheduled games in football, basketball, maybe some of the Olympic sports, probably just football and basketball because you don't want to have the coast-to-coast travel in some of the Olympic sports? Does it mean something else? Here is what Max Olson for The Athletic wrote. While the specifics on how a scheduling pact might work remain unclear, sources in the three conferences suggest the larger goal is alignment so that the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC can work and vote together on major issues such as college football playoff expansion and upcoming NCAA governance changes. This is their shot right back at the SEC, one athletic director said. And Matt Fortuna, who's another writer for The Athletic, said this on Tuesday the NCAA announced the formation of a constitution committee with the hopes of expediting a proposed governance model it is there in voting power where an alliance among the ACC Big Ten and Pac-12 would really show those three conferences power again in numbers they would have 41 votes compared to the 16 of the expanded SEC so that's where this comes in you may have seen the headlines of Big Ten SEC or Pac-12 ACC discussing merger and gone, oh, man, is this going to be more realignment? Are we having, forget the age of the super conference. I don't even know what you want to say for the next word. Is it gargantuan conference, mega conference, double super conference? (laughs) That would be the case if all those leagues decided to merge together. Maybe it is a scheduling thing, and it probably is. I mean, that would make a lot of sense for the schools. But the voting thing... And that does bring up questions to me of why would they not get the Big 12 on board as well because I get it, like, as far as expansion or this or that, maybe you don't want the Big 12 schools. But if you're just trying to basically swing a vote against the SEC or have more power than the SEC, you'd think you'd just want, again, power in numbers, so to speak here. Maybe, though, they just view it as, hey, even if the Big 12 got on board with the SEC, we would still have 41 teams. SEC plus Big 12 would only have 24, so we don't even need them. Why would we approach them for a dying conference? And this is what Max Olson said about the Big 12. While these plans are still in the works, it does appear the Big 12 will not be included in the alliance. Last week, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby met with Klyovkov, that's the Pac-12 Commissioner, to discuss potential options for a strategic alliance. The Big 12 is currently exploring options to preserve its future after Texas and Oklahoma's exit. If the alliance comes together, it would clearly be a setback for the Big 12. Sources in the conference said Bowlesby was optimistic about the potential of working with the Pac-12 and the possibility of this three-league alliance was not discussed on a call between Bowlesby and the Big 12 athletic directors on Friday. While this alliance would presumably mean Power 5 leagues will not look to poach Big 12 members and helps keep the eight members together, This is not a good development for Bullsby. The Big 12 could focus its efforts on expansion going forward, but trying to align with the Power 5 League was considered a preferable possibility. So this kind of all comes down to the, what are they trying to accomplish here? 
What are the Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC trying to get out of an alliance? That's something I don't have an answer to that we won't have an answer to. If it is just about voting, then this isn't a huge negative for the Big 12. But if this is about a scheduling alliance between the different conferences, that's a huge loss for the conference. Not just from the standpoint of Bullsby tried to get the ear of the Pac-12 conference and was basically rejected at that point, but also because you need any lifeboat you can. And when that was being discussed of, well, maybe the Big 12 and Pac-12 could set up, they'll do a non-conference game and they'll have the Big 12, Pac-12 gridiron challenge or whatever you would want to call it. And now next time that you're working on media rights with ESPN or Fox or NBC or whoever's bidding on them, you not only have the conference games to sell, you have the non-conference game to sell of Oregon and Oklahoma State and TCU and USC as opposed to an extra non-conference game where Iowa State is taking on Northern Iowa. And that's going to sell for more money in the media rights. So if they're basically ditching the Big 12 and saying, no, we're just going to do this among these other conferences, that is a huge loss for the Big 12 and would be a huge loss by Bob Bullsby. But overall, I would just say to me, if it's not the scheduling thing, which would be a very good reason to create an alliance because you would be able to create those compelling matchups, right? You can have Ohio State play USC. You can have Clemson take on Michigan. And that is going to add value to your TV contract and your media rights and your TV viewership and all that stuff. But to me, this kind of feels more like it is about the voting with that new group put together by the NCAA with so much of a changing landscape coming in the NCAA. With NIL in place, with the NCAA and some of their remarks lately of maybe the conferences should have more power here. At that point, wouldn't you want to be grouped together with as much power with as much of the other power conferences as possible so you could have a heavy hand in those decisions so that you could be on the same page so that if the SEC does... That was, again, something rumored a few times. The SEC might break off from the NCAA eventually once they have Texas and Oklahoma and maybe try to load the boat a little more with a few other teams and they'd set their own rules. Well, you want to be as powerful at that point as possible with all these other conferences joining together to kind of rudder that storm. And that makes sense from that standpoint. So I don't envision this is going to turn into some mega conference. I don't envision that it's going to necessarily mean the end of the Big 12. I just envision it as them saying, yeah, Big 12, you don't really have as much power as us right now. We're just going to come together on voting and on scheduling alliance. You can deal with your own thing. Wouldn't, in theory, mean an end for KU to the ACC or Big 10 or whatnot? I don't view it that way. If anything, it's even more of the reason for KU to want to leave the Big 12, but obviously that is a two-way street with those other conferences having to accept you in. But to me, this is more so proof that, for one, the Big 12 is dying. And even sticking around with the eight teams, yes, you can stick around for the near term and collect your money with Texas and Oklahoma being gone, and that might be the best solution in the near term. But still, in the long term, the best route is for KU to leave for another conference. And if you can get into the ACC or Big 10, that would be a huge win. But it's also more so proof that, 
maybe college athletics and other schools, they're not comfortable with what the SEC is doing either. This isn't just about the Big 12 dying. This is about we're in a race with the SEC, and we want to fight back to what you're doing as opposed to just getting engulfed and have our own powers taken into your conference and joining them. But I guess at the end of the day, like everything with realignment right now, this is going to be a long process. And as much as I hate saying this, because what does this technically mean for me? It just means that, I don't know, it is at the end of the day the case. Only time will tell. And yeah, I don't know because we're just going to have to wait for more to come out. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Richie Boswell in studio with me. I'm Derek Johnson here on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. I, I overheard one Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. I was waiting to talk to another quarterback, and I'm sorry. I don't mean to eavesdrop. Um, but I heard you ask a question to Jalen Daniels, and, and I don't remember what the question was, but it was something along the lines of the quarterback competition. And and I don't mean to, like, spoil something if, if this is about to be content for you, Matt, but um, talk to him, and he said something along the lines of, you know, if I don't win the job, I'm still going to support the guy with all my might, and I'm still going to work on improving each and every day. What were kind of your thoughts on that comment from Jalen Daniels? Because I thought they were very telling just in terms of where the program's at from a culture perspective, and I think it is really important to have that from some of the younger players, and it's also a reminder that, you know, even if Jalen Daniels doesn't win the job to a guy like Miles Kendrick this year, Kendrick's still a senior, so you're still going to need somebody next year. Yeah, you you know, you didn't spoil anything um i would definitely you know me i would let you know if you did i'd be screaming and throwing things now so you're good um and and i'm glad you were able to hear that because to be honest with you we were up there for almost four hours and uh that single quote was was by far the the most memorable thing i heard today and and that doesn't mean everything else was trash i mean there were a lot of good things said uh both coordinators uh, Lance Leipold talked. They all had interesting things to say and, and, and gave us some more insight into what the what the rebuild looks like there right now. But, yeah, the Jalen Daniels thing was, um, to me, by far the most interesting thing because the, the question was what would it mean to you to win the job or if you won the job. And, and you know, he said, of course, I, I want to win the job. That's, that's why we're all battling. Everybody wants to be the guy. He said, but – if there's someone better for this team than me, then I don't want to win the job because I want to win. And I want, if there's someone better than me, I want them to play because all I want to do is win. And, I, you know, that takes it even more to another level than, than the kind of paraphrasing that you just did. I mean, that shows you not only what he's about as a young man, but it does show you a lot about where this program is at. A lot of talk today about family feel. Um, a, a closeness, a bond that was not always there in the past, taking care of your teammates, taking care of your brothers, looking out for one another, doing things together, being accountable to each other. I mean, you know, these are things that, that have been pretty standard stuff at, at all of Lance Leipold's previous stops, and and it, it's very obvious to me that, that he's been successful so far anyway in implementing that same culture here uh, they're still in the infant stages, and, and obviously the culture is not going to mean anything to fans if they don't win some games eventually. But I think the belief is that you, you can't win games without the right culture, and I feel like they are taking major strides toward having that. Yeah, I was just I was really impressed with that because it's not just you know coming from a competitor, but it's coming from 
a 18-year-old kid, you know? And it's also coming from a guy who, and I guess this is just college sports in general, like, you could easily transfer to another school. We see it all the time with the transfer portal. You lose a job, you go somewhere else. But that doesn't seem to be the mentality at all. And like I was saying earlier, that's so important because I, I could envision a scenario where, let's say, Miles Kendrick ends up being the starter. Jalen Daniels learns, sticks around with the program. And then all of a sudden, next year, when we're back in this situation of who's going to be the quarterback, you feel like we have a more obvious answer next year than we have been over this last decade plus where there's been the questions around the quarterback position every offseason around KU football. Yeah, they're due, right? I mean, they're very due to have a quarterback who is just automatically the guy going into fall camp. And, and you know, sometimes competition is a good thing, so it, I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a totally damning that they haven't had that. But when you haven't had that for 10, 11 years, that, that's a problem. So they, they're due for that, and, um, and, and I, I think that's part of what's being established now, too. I, I think that they're – there's a real, a real strong belief in sort of the idea of there's a bunch of veterans now that are, that are really trying to buy into this thing so they can teach the younger guys. And then they believe that if they teach the younger guys the right way, the younger guys will then carry the torch and teach the next batch of younger guys. And, and, and that's how you build a program. That's how you build culture. That's how it, it, it becomes sustainable. So I, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, talk right now there's a lot of belief there's a lot of good vibes surrounding that place so now you got to go out and, and and show something better on the field and if you do that and those two things you know match up then then you might have something so um i, I think i think today was our our most uh i guess extensive look at, at really how this program sits right now and you know we've heard a lot about Leipold and, and his his past and what he wants to get done here but there are 11 practices into the fall camp now and and so today was a really good look at, at, at how it's going not just what it's about but how it's actually going and and uh and and so you know props to KU for for giving us that kind of time to to, to talk to all these guys and, and get that feel and you know sort of the theme of it right is is um, both Lance Leipold and, and Andy Kotelnicki were asked today um, separately by, by uh, I think it was a television reporter, you know, how, if they're excited to prove that they're power five coaches, if they're excited to prove that they can hang on this level. And both of them, without hesitation, said, this isn't about me. You know, and, and so if, when that kind of attitude and, and that kind of, example is being set at the top it, it, it makes a lot of sense that these kids would be following it now you got to have the right kids you got to have the kids that want to follow that but in a lot of ways it really does seem like KU has that now and 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 you, you see those two answers kind of meshing up and and you realize that um these kids are actually buying into what they're being told right now talking with matt tate of the lawrence journal world ku sports.com as far as the, all the different players you got to talk to today was there one conversation or a player that kind of stuck out or stood out in your mind? Uh, good question. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what. It, it was uh, for me. It was uh, running back Amari Pesic Hickson, um, and I didn't really expect that. I didn't have any um, preconceived notions that it would be him. I, I'd never talked to him before, and uh, I think he's a name that people know, but but still a guy that's it's kind of, uh, you know, ready to maybe take that next step and break out a little bit. And uh, I, I've got a lot of time with him 
just one on one, and and he's got a great story. He's got a great attitude. He's got a great approach. Um, I think he said his father was a Navy SEAL when he was younger. So, um, you know, clearly discipline is a, a big part of his family dynamic and something that he learned uh, from from his parents. Uh, you know, he he talked about doing a lot of things that that nobody sees to to help him get to this point. And and I I followed that up and said, well, like, what's an example? And you know, he said. Everything, really. I mean, you know, making my bed the right way, brushing my teeth the right way, being the first one in here and, and putting my work in the right way and, and, you know, staying until I feel like I've done the job, not just when the clock hits a certain time I leave, you know. And, and so, anyway, I got into it a, a little bit deeper than that, but I, I thought his story was really interesting. I asked him, do you still make your bed? You know, you're, you're a college kid. You play football. It'd be really easy to uh, to to blow off making your bed a couple of days a week because you're just dead tired and you got to get to practice early in the morning. But um, he he does. He still makes his bed, and, uh, and I think that that that's kind of a, a, a you know a, a telling thing about who he is and 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 what his story and his life's been about. So he he really he really was interesting to me, and and uh, and, and I think you know you look at that room and and you look at the running backs. They've got obviously Belton Gardner, who's a known commodity and a talented back, uh, and then they've got a highly touted recruit in in Devin Neal, who's a freshman now, and people around this area obviously know a lot about him. And and so um, you know, Amari's got some work cut out for him to 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 be able to to kind of. Uh, you know, be the other guy, but but the biggest like buzzword quote you you hear a lot of these today, right? Any media day, you get a lot of cliches and and fun phrases and catchphrases and mantras and things like that. And and I thought Colton Nicky, the offensive coordinator, had a, had a great one. Um, you know, when he was talking about the running back room, he said it's that old saying, and this is the first time I've heard it. So it, either I'm not old enough, or maybe I'm too old. I don't know. But he said it's that old saying: you need a pair and a spare. He said you really want three guys that uh, that you feel like people know their names, and then if you have that, you have some insurance, you have some versatility, you have some flexibility, and and I think KU's got a shot to have that. I mean, I think all indications are that Devin Neal's going to play, and that he's done very well in camp. Uh, you know, Velton Gardner's good enough to do it because he's proven it, and and I think Amari Pesikin's right there with them. I mean, I think that this is a, a a pretty nice pair and a spare that they have in that running back room. So. Um, we've seen it from the very beginning when Lance Leipold was hired. I mean, I think KU needs to fully do everything they can to embrace that ability to run the football, control the clock, uh, control games, and, and sort of physically impose their will on other people. You know, if they're able to do that with some success, I, I think that gives them a chance to, to stay in some games maybe that, that people don't really expect them to stay in. So, you know, they got to do it. And, and we don't know if they can until they actually get out there, but – uh, they certainly have some of the pieces in place, and, and that'll obviously be a lot about the offensive line. Yeah, and another thing that Andy Kotelnicki said, and I'm, I'm with you, I hadn't heard that phrase before, but I did like it. Um, uh, another thing that we heard him say is, you know, we're not going to be focused on, like, time of possession. Like, that doesn't necessarily win games, which I think was music to anybody who does analytics ears. But um, as far as that comment, I don't know how you took that. Like, I didn't take it as, well, we're just going to run fast. I kind of took that as more so we're not going to just be pigeonholed into doing something and time of possession won't indicate who's going to win the game. But I agree with you. I I think that there's still at the same point in time is going to be an emphasis on, you know, we almost see it in college basketball, right, where 
You have teams who maybe are, are a little less talented, but they'll run a slower tempo offense, whereas you'll have a, a team who's better running a faster tempo offense. And in theory, the more possessions in a game, the team that's more talented is going to have more opportunities to showcase that they're a better team. And the more possessions in a game, the less chance that you have of getting upset. So you would think the counter to that is less possessions, more chance for something weird to happen in one of the minimum amount of possessions. Do you think that is going to be the case for this team that we're going to see them play more like what we've seen from kind of like a Kansas State in recent years where uh, it has been maybe more of that ball control offense and it's just going to be kind of fundamentals first and uh, just limiting big plays for the opposing team and trying to make it as competitive as you can? Yeah, I th- you know, I think that'll be at the core of everything they do, but I think I, I don't think they'll limit themselves either. Kind of like you said, I mean, I-, I thought the time of possession thing was cool because a lot of people will hang hard on that time of possession. And, and um, I-, I thought it was interesting that, that, that he pointed that out. I mean, that's not his philosophy. His philosophy is you need to be efficient with the possessions you get. And if you go down and score a touchdown, if it takes you a minute and you keep them off the board and they have the ball for eight minutes, you're still winning the game, you know? So I, I think he's got the right mindset there, obviously. He's, he's obviously done this a long time and, and, and far more accomplished than anything I've done. Uh, you know, he, he knows what he's talking about. So it was cool to hear that, though. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the other things I heard today a lot, especially from the offensive players, that we're going to move fast. We're, we're going to move fast, and, and I don't think that means they're going to try to play fast and score, you know, air raid style. I don't think it means they're going to uh, be opposed to running the football. I think it just means their, 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 their style will be to move, and that means some motion. That means moving the chains. That means, you know, moving in and out of the huddle quickly. I, I think the idea is, is some urgency, and I, I think that, once you have that, if they can establish that, I, I think the playbook's still wide open. And, and, and if Colton Nicky's good at what he does, he'll call a good game off of that. But I, I, I did hear over and over and over today um, that, that this offense is going to move fast. And, and um, you know, so, so could they still win some time of possession battles, even playing fast? Yeah, they could, you know. Um, will it be a focus? No, I think the focus will be getting into the right plays quickly, calling the right things, giving themselves options and flexibility to get out of bad plays. And in order to do all that stuff, you do have to move with purpose and move quickly. And, and, and I think you'll see a lot of that. And I think there's a lot to like about that philosophy because it's sort of, you know, it at least gives you the opportunity as an offense to dictate how the game is played instead of lining up and, and trying to counter what the defense is dictating to you you're now trying to dictate and force them to react to what you're doing. And, and I, I, you know, it doesn't always work out that way, but I think a lot of times that allows teams and offenses to have an upper hand. And so I I get the feeling that that's going to be the approach. That's what they're trying to do. If you had to rank the position group you're least worried about and the position group you'd be most worried about, what would come in those spots right now? Wow, good question. I, I think Thank you. The, le- the, 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 least, <laughs> the least concerning position has to be running back, man. It, it just, I, I mean, I think Devin Neal's good enough to, to be a, a starting featured type of back as a true freshman. And then you've got two other guys who are very talented and, and have done it before. So I, I think the depth is, is really good there, and, and, and it's talented depth. Um, 
they probably have another running back or two that I'm not even mentioning. Um, but, but you know, uh, I, I think that if that's the case, that even further shows that that, that that's a position of strength. Um, Brian Borland, the defensive coordinator today, said I, I think he said, if I heard it right, that, that he thought his defensive ends were, were one of the stronger positions on, on the defense. Um, so that makes me feel pretty good about the, the D-line. I think the all, offensive line has probably improved. I think you maybe have enough at quarterback. Um, I, I like the secondary a whole lot. Um, you know, I think for me the answer would probably have to be the offensive line or, or linebacker. Um, the offensive line largely because it's just so important. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily think there's, there's a reason to think they may not have the pieces. I think they may have the pieces, but boy, they just have to be good. They have to be good uh, because if they're not, it's one and eleven, zero oh and twelve. You know, and 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 everybody knows that. So that's always a concern until you see what they've got. Um, and, and then linebacker, just a, a few unknowns, a few names that, that you don't know a whole lot about, and and some other guys that that have been around and maybe are names you've heard, but but are going to be asked to step up and, and, and to fill bigger roles and, and play bigger than they've played in the past. So it, it would probably be one of those two positions. Uh, I, I think in, in a lot of those other spots, they're in, they're in pretty solid shape, especially for a, a, a first-year coach and, and a team with some turnover and a team that's coming off a winless season. I mean, there, there's a lot more to like about this team and this this program right now than maybe their recent history would, would indicate. Would you agree that the offensive line is, I mean, this sounds like the way you were going there, is the most important of the positions just in terms of, I mean, how can you evaluate moving forward your quarterback or your running game or anything right. really on offense without the offensive line at least being competent enough that you can run your offense? That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, to to be completely, um, you know, lame on this deal. I think you could take any team, any season at any level and say the offensive line is the most important, right? I mean, even with the Kansas City Chiefs, you could say their offensive line is the most important, right? Because they're the ones that have to protect Mahomes and, and they have to allow uh, the Chiefs to be balanced enough to, to run the ball well enough so that teams can't just load up in the secondary. And, and so, you know, that, that could probably be said, but uh, just because that can be said a lot of places and, and with a lot of teams doesn't make it any less true. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that the offensive line is without question the most important part for this Kansas team. I mean, they need good quarterback play. Um, th- th- there's no question about that. You know, that, that's, that's arguably the most important position in all of sports. So they've got to have a guy who can do that job and do it well. Um, but, man, it's such a different thing because on the O-line you're asking five guys to do it in unison, together, consistently, over and over and over. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I think that – I think the other, the other thing that was really cool, and you probably already talked about this or, or maybe you will, um, but, but the, the, the phrasing with – with Kotal Nicky talking about the quarterbacks, he said, what did he say? They're looking for consistently good play, not occasionally great play. I think that's such a cool way to put it. I mean, and, and I think it shows you kind of where the battle's at, right? Like, 
there's a lot of guys who can flash greatness. There's a lot of guys who can make throws with big arms or, or get out of trouble and make a throw on the run, but then go throw three interceptions in the same game. You'd rather have a guy who's just solid and doesn't make those mistakes than you would a guy who occasionally looks great, but also is not great at sometimes. So, you know, that, that, I don't know where the quarterback thing's going to go. I've had a ton of people in, on Twitter and such asking me, you know, who's going to win the job, who's going to win the job. I, I don't have any feel. I really don't. I mean, I think it's going to go all the way down to opening night. Um, everybody can make their guess or their prediction as to who and why and, and all of that, but, but I've not heard or seen anything that, that compels me to feel overly strong about any of the three of them. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to like about all three guys, and there's some questions about all three guys, too. So I, I, I don't know. I was, I was around you enough today to kind of, to kind of wonder if maybe you have a feel. Um, and, and I'm not trying to force you to, to give away your, your hand here either, but, but it, it seems like maybe you do. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah, I would have to say right now, um, I would probably assume Miles Kendrick's going to be the guy. Now, that's not for me like knowing anything. That's just based on how I'm reading the tea leaves, and everybody's open to their own interpretation. But what the coaching staffs have said that they're looking from the position, based on what I saw in open practice, based on uh, just some different things you've you've seen or heard. To me, I I feel like Miles Kendrick would be the guy, and then Jalen Daniels would be the guy that. This year, maybe he's a sponge. Maybe he comes in at some point. Who knows? Maybe there is a quarterback change again. Um, but at the worst case, Jalen Daniels is then the guy next year. That's kind of my thought. Yeah, I, and and you know, it's a valid it's a valid case for sure. I mean, that's what we've known about Miles Kendrick throughout his career, right? Solid but not spectacular. He's never been a guy that's going to wow you with anything, but he's always been a guy that's in the mix. He's and and. Maybe that says more about the other guys than it does him, but either way, you can only play the hand that's dealt, and he's always been in the mix. And I talked to him a little bit about that. I mean, the the role that he's played as a quarterback at Kansas, he's had three or four different roles here, um, from from starter to true backup to completely overlooked and forgotten to, you know, now he's in this three-horse race potentially, and it it may not even be a three-horse race. You know, there's just – been no indication strongly either way yet about where that's at and 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 i I think i mean what is it august i don't even know what the date is the 17th i mean we've we've got Mm -hmm. two plus weeks until until the opener a little more than two weeks i mean a lot can change in those two weeks you know let's let's say your theory's right right now I, i think there's still time even if what what you laid out is exactly the way it's shaping up right now i think there is still time for a guy even like Jason Bean to make a push and to show in the next two weeks that he's consistently good enough to be the guy. And and so I think that, that a lot of fans that want to know the answer and a lot of people are, are always curious about that quarterback position, understandably so. I, I mean, I, th- I think that explains a lot to, to those people. I think that this is not coaching staff, uh, excuse me, this is not a coaching staff that's being coy or or trying to play things too close to the vest. I, I think they just absolutely need all of the time allowed to, to make a decision here. Could they make a decision today? Yeah, if they play today, they could make a decision today, you know, but they don't have to. And and so why rush it? Why why make a premature decision? Why not give all three of those guys uh, the full amount of time they can get to, to, to you know, present their case and, and then you make a pick when you have to. So I, 
a lot of times I think the quarterback battle is 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 annoying and it's it's overplayed and <laughs> coaches are doing it just to be funny and just to you know do what coaches do. But but in this case, I, I don't think that's the case at all. I, I really think they are just using what's been given to them to evaluate as much. Uh, a body of work of each of the guys as they possibly can. And, and, and I, I think that speaks to their ability as coaches. I think that's exactly what they should be doing. And, and uh, I think KU fans should be excited about that. They're, they're going to pick the best guy, and they're going to pick the best guy over a, the full amount of time, not just a guy who had a good first two weeks of camp or who looked good in the summer. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to pick the guy who showed – consistently good play throughout the offseason and the preseason and, and go from there. So doesn't mean they can't change. You know, doesn't mean doesn't mean all three of these guys won't start or play at some point. I mean there's there's still a lot up in the air and a lot of options there obviously, but it's uh it it, it is a pretty big decision. But but again, as we saw last year, I mean Jalen Daniels was a freshman. He was running for his life a lot. He would have been a freshman even if he had a great offensive line and he would have made mistakes. But, boy, not having a line didn't help him at all. And and give the kid all kinds of credit for being so tough and resilient and bouncing back and hopping up after he got crushed. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if he had had just a little better line play, um, you know, his season would have been a lot less painful, let's put it that way. So, uh, so, so you know, the O-line is, is absolutely, absolutely the most important position for this team because of what it can do. It can, it can just set the tone. It can establish, uh, you know, a baseline of consistent play. It, it can be something that you, you, you view as reliable and, and, uh, you know, you can build off of that. And, and that's, nobody will forget anytime soon that that's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to build something. Yeah. And I'll say this, like, even with the quarterbacks thing, that's just my assumption right now, but you bring it up. It's been two weeks and guess how many weeks we have till the start of the season, two weeks. So we have basically double the amount of time that's happened. Certainly things can change at that quarterback position. And like you said, sounds like it's going to be uh, in it for the long haul. As far as the uh, quarterback evaluation goes, he is Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal world, KU sports.com. Matt, thank you so much for the time, man. Yes, sir. Always fun. We had a lot to talk about today. We always do, but my gosh, we could have gone another hour. So uh, appreciate you having me, and uh, it'll be interesting to see where this thing stands next Tuesday. Yes, it will. He is Matt Tate. Check out all his work, KUSports.com and in the Lawrence Journal world. Thanks again, man. You bet. Take it easy, Derek. Welcome in. Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Thank you for joining us here on your Tuesday, 5 o'clock hour with Richie Boswell, David Conover in studio. I'm Derek Johnson, joined now by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. Kevin, we got to talk with uh, members of KU, the football team, coaches today at KU Football Media Day, and it, it felt like one of the biggest things with uh, – Lance Leipold in the program was just over the consistent ability to develop chemistry and everything he was saying was just referring to everybody as we, we, we. Um, is that something that you, just from speaking to people around college football in his time at Buffalo, just having that team set mentality that we've heard about really in, in all these different talks with all these people about the we or about whenever we ask these different players, you know, who's somebody that stick out and the answers are always, well, it's, it's everybody, everybody sticks out. Is that the kind of, I guess, uh, 
program development that needed to happen for KU and something that you were expecting when Leipold got the job? Yeah, I think so. And I think it was something that probably got nailed in a little bit more even when they were having camps, you know, over the summer. There were players who were coming, you know, to these camps where the coaches were working out, you know, high school players. So it, it wasn't that they needed to be there or, or whatever else, but you still had the coaches there building relationships with the players. You saw, you know, the strength coach talking about all of the different things that they did outside of the weight room, the community service activities that they did and the things of that nature. And I think the big reason for all of that, Derek, was partially because of the fact that they came in so late and so you didn't have the spring to to try and build those things and, and build those relationships. And so a little bit of it was maybe sort of shake and bake in terms of, hey, we're going we're gonna to find out who these guys are and they're going to get to know us and we're going to build these relationships. And I think if you talk to any of the assistants or staff members or whatever, that was really the priority this offseason and this summer. More than recruiting, more than evaluating, more than – you know, getting ahead with the 2023 class or, or different things like that, it was building this chemistry and building this foundation of relationships that's not just going to be important for them this season, but going to be important for them coming on. And I think, Derek, you and I have even talked about the fact that it was apparent they had those relationships at Buffalo when you look at how many of those players were, were really excited to follow Lance Leipold and, and follow him to Lawrence and, and follow him outside of e- even a territory or region that they were comfortable with to come play college, continue to play college football for him. And so I think that that was probably priority one, one A, one B, two, three, whatever, was to make sure that they did build those relationships so that they could head into fall practice where where they had that and had something to build on. Talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports, as you look around the Big 12 Conference and compare maybe different positional groups from KU to different teams, I think the first step, obviously, for KU is, you know, if you can be better than somebody at a certain way or a certain position, then obviously – that's a big increase, but just getting up to Big 12 level, right? Just being as good as the next worst team in certain regards. Where do you think KU is the closest at doing that right now? I think the running back room is is definitely Big 12 level. Uh, and by that, I don't mean, you know, hey, they've got four Big 12 guys. I mean, that Big 12 running back room is better than some other Big 12 running back rooms. When you look at what they have in Belton Gardner, when you look at Devin Neal and the talent that he brings in, Amari Pisa-Hickson, um, and you you look at all of those players uh, across there, you know, Highshaw is another guy. I think Kansas legitimately can go four deep with that group, and with the exception of Neal, I believe each of the other guys has run for 80 yards in a Big 12 game before. And so when you look at at that group where you have so many guys who can contribute 
and contribute in different ways. And then you look at what they want to do offensively in terms of running wide zone and things of that nature. I think that that's probably the group that jumps out where you look at it and say, okay, this is the most Big 12-ready group right now. But I think one of the most encouraging things, Derek, is that's not sort of the answer with a bullet that maybe I thought it would be heading into the season. Because I think that the defensive backs are starting to get there from a talent standpoint, from a depth standpoint. There's a lot of youth there and guys that that need to go out and prove it. But I think that just on the hoof and looking at the talent and the way those guys have come together – you know, that's an encouraging part. And I think one of the good surprises maybe from the spring and carrying over now into the fall is they may have a, a pretty decent little group of pass rushers with Kyron Johnson moving down to the defensive end spot with Steven Parker, you know, returning to the practice field. And with the guys that they have there, Malcolm Lee taking a step forward, he's probably a better fit for this system than he was before. And the guys that they have there, I think that that's another group that that kind of stands out where you can say, hey, this this group has a chance to be a a legitimate Big 12 group in terms of getting after the quarterback. And and that's something that I don't know that we would have said a, a year ago. And so I do think that there are some other groups sort of starting to pop up along that uh, along that radar as well. What about on the opposite end of the spectrum there? Do you think. Uh, what groups are maybe lagging behind that need to see improvement this year to get back up to that level? The the biggest problem is and, and has been, and Derek, you and I have talked about this, it's quarterback. And, and I'm not trying to, to put that on, on anybody, but I think even the most rosy glass person would look at it and say Kansas doesn't quite look at quarterback like any other Big 12 school. And when you look at the year a couple of years ago that, that Carter Stanley had, Kansas had a chance to win six or seven games that year, even though they won three, in part because quarterback was, was solid. It, it wasn't great. You know, I think, Derek, what was, what was Carter Stanley about, you know, seventh or eighth in QBR, something like that, but he wasn't tenth, and he wasn't tenth by a significant margin. And I think when you look across the Big 12 at, at who everybody is lining up at quarterback, that's an area that, that maybe jumps out that Kansas has to get significantly better, not just in the starting spot, but also maybe in the backup spots and, and having depth there and, and you know your quarterback of the future, having that guy in the fold and and all of those things. I do think maybe you know three or four months ago, maybe five months ago, we would have jumped up and said immediately the offensive line would be right in that same exact discussion. I think the offensive line's getting a little bit better, though, and I think that I'll be interested to see how they they pan out uh, once you know they actually start playing games. But at the same time, I think they've got a group where you know you've got five or so solid starters. You also have you know, one or two other guys who can compete for starting spots. And, you know, based on last year where you wondered at times whether Kansas had, you know, one or two good offensive linemen to be able to to look at it and say, okay, maybe you've got starters and maybe you've got one or two other guys that you feel good about in a pinch. It, it's quite a step forward. And, and 
a tribute to the way those guys are, are developing, but also, you know, a tribute to maybe some of the lumps that, that those guys took and were thrown in for last year. All right, I, I got a humdinger of a question here. What would you rather have, a top five offensive line in the Big 12, but the worst quarterback position, or a top five quarterback position for KU with the worst offensive line? Oh, that's tough, because I, I think in most cases I, I would go quarterback 100%, and I probably still would. But it, the thing that makes me think about it at least a little bit is the fact that Buffalo's offensive line was such a heartbeat for what those guys did. And, and for people who don't realize, I think Buffalo led the nation last year in yards per carry when they ran wide zone. And when you watch them on tape, I mean, they jump out. It's it's balletic, you know, in terms of being, you know, graceful and everything. It's physical. I mean, they were everything that you would want them to be. And so if Kansas were to have that kind of offensive line, not necessarily, you know, from a talent standpoint, but to to be able to accomplish that where, hey, Kansas can run wide zone, they can run it consistently, they can run it well, and they can move guys and get to their spots and everything else, I think that would help the quarterback position quite a bit. At the same time, I do think that in college football today, there's just so much value to having a guy back there who can who can be a top-notch quarterback. And let's be honest, Derek, if we're talking about a top-five quarterback type of guy because a couple of those guys are usually Heisman Trophy candidates and, and things of that nature. And so if you have that kind of quarterback, obviously it changes your uh, your whole team's prognostication pretty quickly. Yeah, it's it's pretty tough to like – I mean, we, we were having these conversations with Puka Williams like, okay, if he runs for 2,000 yards or, or if you said like Puka Williams is going to finish top 10 in the Heisman – there's no way around it that they're not like a bowl team at that point, right? Um, whether it's because they're a bowl team and that pushes Puka Williams that, or it's the same thing with the quarterback play. It's hard to see it, you know, where you say, oh, yeah, we have one of the best quarterbacks in the conference, and yet we're not very good. As far as the offensive line, though, with the the scheme that they're going to be running, where we've heard so much about this wide zone scheme that they're bringing in from Buffalo, but also the multiplicity of the offense, how much do you think just what they're going to be doing is going to benefit the offensive line than maybe what they've done in years past? Well, actually, I think it's pretty tough to run wide zone at a high level. And so it's not necessarily the sort of thing that you say, okay, well, now that they're going to run wide zone heavily, it's going to help those guys out. I do think that Kansas maybe trends that way a little bit more than some other styles. You know, we saw at times, you know, Kansas trying to run sort of a, a power sweep type thing, you know, under less miles when they didn't really have the guys to, to line up and, and knock a guy off the ball. And I think the offensive line is probably built a little bit better for mobility than it is for power. And, and so there are some good traits there. The thing about it is, is I don't know that the footwork for wide zone is something that's especially natural for a guy. You know, it's something you really have to drill in. And and all credit, I mean, nobody in the country maybe is better at teaching it than, than Scott Fuchs. And so, 
when, when you look at that, I, I'm not saying they, they can't get there or anything like that. And when you listen to a lot of the ways that, that Leipold talks, you know, there's a saying that Nick Saban uses quite a bit where he says, you know, you don't practice until you get it right. You practice until you can't get it wrong. And one of my impressions of this Leipold staff is that they're going to approach this year very much that way, that they're going to run wide zone and get the offensive line working on the footwork. And guys are probably going to be sick and tired of thinking about, hey, where do I step? How do I step, et cetera. But they're going to drill that thing down until it is natural. And so you could see you know, them start to improve it as far as running that as the season gets on. I think the real benefit to it, though, is going to be seen on down the line when you're talking about year two, year three, year four, and players are, are coming into the spring and they know outside, they know wide zone, they know how to run wide zone, and it's just sort of a part of their DNA and what they do. And I think that that's when you you really start to to look a lot like Buffalo's offensive line did last year. Well, I guess that's the ultimate question, and it's something that Andy Kotelnicki brought up. It's it's easy to stress culture and have that impact when there's no games being played, and it's a whole other sure. thing if you're Kansas and you go 1-11 or 2-10 and 10 to continue to preach that culture without the record to point to to say see look it's working because it is a long-term process so if it is that long-term of a process is that worrisome at all for the zone running game that it might take that long or could you see gradual improvements over the course of the season you know i i think it kind of is what it is i think you're going to maybe see gradual improvements it's not going to be there's not going to be a eureka moment Derek. it's not going to be one of those things where hey kansas you know, is struggling to run this, and then a week later, everything clicks and everything is wonderful, and and all of that. And having said that, you know, you look at every build worth its salt. Whether it was Bill Snyder, whether it was Mark Mangino at, at Kansas, whether it was Nick Saban at his different stops, wherever, you know, it's always about the process, and it's always about being better on the next rep than you are on this rep and being better at the next practice than you are at this one and being better at the next game than you are at this one. And you can only really measure yourself in that way against yourself. And it does make it really tough, right? Because that's not how we're ingrained. If Kansas comes out and and loses a blowout game in week five, it's not as easy to go home and look at it and say, well, I'm continuing along the right path and I'm, you know, I'm improving little by little and that's going to make us better on down the line. That's, that's tough to do. And that's human nature. And that's why it's not easy to build this. And having said all of that, you know, that's quite frankly, why Kansas brought Lance Leifold in is that is something that he's excelled at and that he's been able to do. And that whole building a culture and and building a program sort of one step at a time. And I think that when you look at Kansas and where the program is specifically, that's really what was needed because this wasn't going to be an overnight fix no matter who you brought in. And so you need somebody that's going to sort of be there the long haul and just sort of nudge things along 
and get the boulder moving a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit faster and a little bit faster. Uh, last thing I got for you, we heard from Jalen Daniels today, and he mentioned the idea that, and I talked to Matt Tate about this, the idea that you know if he doesn't end up winning the job, he's still going to be a big supporter of the guy, and he's going to take the rest of the year to progress and, and learn. And I thought that was really endearing to hear from uh, an 18-year-old, especially in a world of college sports right now where, hey, if you don't win the job, a lot of guys just transfer out. And I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to do, but it makes the guys who would want to stick and do that, I think, a little bit more special. Uh, do you think that might end up being the best thing for the career of Jalen Daniels if he was, let's say, the backup this year to a guy like Miles Kendrick, and then you would have a year to kind of learn on the job and go into next year maybe as the incumbent starter at that point? You know, it wouldn't be a bad thing for for sure. I, I think that when you look at quarterbacks and specifically quarterbacks in this type of offense, where you know it's not necessarily your job to go out and throw the ball forty five times a game, it's your job to really manage a game. And, and I know that there's a negative connotation with with game manager, but there shouldn't be because there's nothing more important that a quarterback can do then get his court, his team into the right situations. And, you know, when I was down covering Texas, Brian Harson, who's now the, the head coach at Auburn, one of the things that he used to say all the time is that good quarterbacks make plays, great quarterbacks get you out of bad plays. And I think, you know, when we think about that in our minds, a lot of times we're thinking Patrick Mahomes, you know, running away from five guys and throwing the ball across his body and finding a receiver that nobody knew was open. But getting you out of bad plays a lot of times happens before the snap even does. You know, getting everybody aligned right, getting yourself out of a bad play that was just called that you can see at the line, hey, that thing's not going to work. And being in a situation where, hey, maybe we're going to turn the ball over here, but... I'm going to tuck this thing in and eat it and live to fight for another day. That's getting you out of a bad play. And I think that the biggest area for growth for Jalen Daniels in particular is, is he's going, he's got some ability. Obviously he's, he's got an arm. He's mobile. He, he's tough. He took some serious shots last year. The biggest area for growth for him and the thing that could make him the type of guy where we talk about on this show where we say, hey, this is somebody who gives Kansas a chance week in and week out, it's not going to come from making some of the plays that, that we saw him make last year with his natural ability. It's going to come with him being able to get Kansas out of the bad plays. He is Kevin Flaherty. Check out all his work at 24-7 Sports. Kevin, thank you for the time as always. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports, joining us here on a Tuesday. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.